Good morning, church. I bring you blessings and greetings from Redemption Church in Mobile, Alabama, a church that has walked where you're walking. We're a little further down the road of God's faithfulness. And I want to bring a word today. And before I do, I want to say to Pat and the kids, this church dearly loves you. It was my privilege to come last Thursday and to see the, the, the celebration of life, the funeral service, the time of grief and mourning begun in that time. And, and we're just grateful. I stand in amazement of how well you love this man and his family. And also of this staff and team. And I want you to know that in Mobile, there's a church that understands this. And they're praying for you and for all that is in front of you. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because this is a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. We will do nothing less than preach this gospel to ourselves as we preach it to the nations. This morning's message is entitled, The Gift No One Wants, Everyone Gets, and Few Embrace. What is the gift that no one wants and everyone gets and few embrace? The gift of pain. On August the 16th, 2007, my day began as any typical day in Mobile, Alabama. Very hot, very humid. Even in November, it's still that way. But on that morning, my wife Tammy and I had just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And uh, she was taking our daughter Kayla for an audition. My daughter plays the cello. Tammy was a professional oboist. Played in symphonies around the country. A very talented, wonderful woman and pastor's wife. They took off for Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I had a meeting. A man was flying in from Dallas for lunch and then back to my office. When I got back to the office, Tammy called and said, I have a flat tire. Can I take your vehicle? I said, good. Mine's safer anyway. And so she, we exchanged. I knew I had a flat to fix in front of me, and I met my meeting. She took off. And about an hour and a half, two hours later, my phone just lit up. I thought my assistant would take it. She didn't. It kept ringing, kept ringing. Finally, I stepped out, took my phone. It was my daughter. And she said, Dad, we've been in a wreck. Somewhere between Mobile and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, a semi was left standing in the middle of the highway. And don't know why exactly, but Tammy plowed straight into it, was killed instantly. And my life went on a totally different trajectory. The shocking reality of death hit me. It's something you think about but like Pat and I have talked, it's like a bee that buzzes around your head. You just shoo it away. You, you don't want to contemplate where Pat's at right now. You don't want to contemplate where his children are at right now. But there is a moment here where we begin to see the faithfulness of God and we begin to deal with our personal pain. That was 15 years ago for me. 20 years ago, there was a, an amazing pastor in Denver, Colorado named Rick Ferguson. And Rick was with his family on vacation traveling across Kansas, pulling a boat. When a piece of metal cut the tire on their vehicle, the boat jackknifed and flipped. Kathy was in the back seat. Justin was driving their son. And Rick was in the passenger seat giving clear commands throughout the whole ordeal. Hold it here. Don't overcorrect. Move here. But nonetheless, the event took place. Everyone walked away except for Rick. 
Several years ago, God brought Kathy into my life and me into hers, and God had a different plan and trajectory for both of our lives. The psalm we began this service with resonates with both of us because it talks about the land of the living. Can I tell you, the land of the living is a good thing, but the land of the living is a hard thing, and it's a painful thing. But God has grace for personal pain. Think again of the title, The Gift No One Wants. Nobody wants to be where Pat's at right now. Nobody wants to be where their children are at or where even you're at as a church. There's deep personal pain, but it's not just contained to this room. This pain is far beyond this room, and it's in this community. I'm amazed by this fact. The United States of America makes up 5% of the world's population. 5% of the world's population, yet we consume 80% of the world's opioids. Now help me with this. 80%, what kind of pain is it that we're trying to kill? And it's a misnomer. If it was a painkiller, one pill would take care of all your pain. Actually, it's a life killer. Pastors and churches are in the pain business. We minister to people in pain while we're in our own pain. A.W. Tozier famously said, God never uses a man greatly until he wounds a man deeply. All believers are called by God to make disciples, to reproduce, to multiply. All of us are. But would it shock you or surprise you to know that your greatest qualification for doing that is not your education? It's your pain. It's your struggle. Yes, it's your divorce. It's your malady. It's your brokenness. It's your handicap. You see, we have a God, as we sang about a moment ago, who bleeds, and he is a God who weeps. Unlike any man-made fake deity, our God comes into this suffering world to suffer so that not only we might, we might have a moral example, oh my, far greater than that because he came to ultimately deal with the source of all of our pain and suffering. So not only is there personal pain in this room, let me say quickly, there's leadership pain too. The elders, the staff, lay leaders, this church is amazing. I've met people early this morning who got here long before you did to man the doors, to start the coffee, to clean the building, to turn it on, to get everything going, to rehearse, to get ready to minister to the body of Christ that gathers together in this place. But in the midst of that, we all have to do this while we're in pain. Your pastor is not the only person hurting in this room. Some of you have never had your pain recognized, but it's real. It's real. There's leadership pain. Sam Chan wrote a book called Leadership Pain. He said, if you're not hurting, you're not leading. You hurt out of your woundedness. You lead out of your pain and suffering. If there's, there's no progress in the body of Christ without pain. The, the difference between where I am spiritually and where I need to be spiritually can be measured in pain. This is not to glorify pain. We are not gluttons for punishment. But Jesus gives us the only viable option for what to do with our pain. I became aware of a man named Dr. Paul Brand years ago. He was a medical missionary to India, and he worked in 
particularly with leprosy patients. And he taught me something in his book, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, along with Philip Yancey. He taught me about leprosy. Leprosy is one of the most dreaded diseases throughout human history. And many, for many eons of time, people thought it was a contagious disease, and it is, but not like you think. We thought it was like a flesh-eating disorder because when you see lepers, parts of their bodies have fallen off and they, 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 they're horrible to look at. Their skin takes almost this translucent quality to it. And you begin to think this is, this is something horrible. What is this curse? What, we dis- what, what science and medicine has discovered is that leprosy is not a flesh-eating disease. It is a disease of the central nervous system. It literally cuts off your capacity to feel pain. Sounds like an ideal disease. Except the problem is you don't know when you're harming yourself. You see, pain turns out in this broken, sinful, fallen world, pain turns out is a blessing of God's grace in this. There's not many qualities to pain. None that I want to trumpet and praise, but I'm here to tell you there is a quality in that it does awaken us to something that's wrong, something that's lost, something we need help for. Dr. Paul Brand says in another book called The Gift No One Wants, which is partly where I got this title, he says, if I held in my hands the power to eliminate physical pain from the world, I would not exercise it. My work with pain-deprived patients has proved to me that pain protects us from destroying ourselves. There is personal pain. There's leadership pain. There's congregational pain. When Tammy died, the people of Redemption Church grieved as if their own mother had died. And she's still dearly missed. You see, as a church, you're suffering a great loss in Amy. Here's the irony. Benny and Carolyn Woods are lifelong friends of my mom and dad, lifelong friends of mine. We were in the same church, McFeeders Bend Baptist Church, where Amy grew up. Amy and I were at that church at the same time. We didn't know each other. I'm a little bit older than she is, or a lot older than she is. But friend, congregations go through pain. And I want you to accept that. I want you to hear that, because that's why I'm here, to encourage you today where to do, what to do with your pain, where to go with your pain. There's, there's another kind of pain. Very quickly, I want to talk about, just for a moment, I want to talk about community pain. Because there's pain in this community. There's pain in this community where you work and where you live and where you go to school. You can see it all around you. Some of it you're aware of, some of it you are not yet aware of. Oh, that you would pray, that you would boldly ask God to open your eyes and your ears to see and to hear the pain that's in this community. Why? Because God planted this great church in this community to bring a God who sees and a God who bleeds and a God who weeps to those who do the same. The difference is they have no hope. LifePoint Church, let me give you a couple of thoughts. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to at least consider these thoughts about grief. This is something Kathy and I were talking about on our trip up yesterday, and I want to just share, first of all, you need to honor the pain of others. You need to honor Amy and her great work in this church. You need to honor the grief of her children. And what they're going through is different. You recognize that. And and it's tempting to want to wrap your arms around them and smother them. They don't need smothering. They just need to know you honor their suffering right now. 
Um, and Pat needs you to honor his pain, not to minimize it, not to one day ask, aren't you better? Just let him be where he's at. Let them be where, there's, where they're at. There's a need to honor. Secondly, grief, grief is a time that is prone to misunderstanding. A greater grace is needed within the body of Christ. A greater grace is needed with his family. Job's friends got it right for seven days. They didn't say a thing. They were just present. They were practical. They helped. But it's when we start sharing our opinions that we get in trouble. Isn't it true? And they were good up until that point when they started speculating. Well, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Maybe there's sin in your life. Maybe there's this. Maybe there's that. Let me just encourage you. We are prone to misunderstanding in times of grief. Third thought, grief alters your life. People at my church were asking the question, when's the old Pastor Ed coming back? And I told them he ain't coming back. That guy's gone. My life was altered, and, and I want to tell you this. That sounds doomish and gloomish, but I believe God has used my suffering to refine my heart, and God will do that with Pat. God will do that with his children, and God will do that with you if you let him. There's a gift that no one wants, but everyone gets but very few embrace. My challenge to you today, church, as we look into God's word, is to embrace this gift. Even though it's hard, it may even choke in your throat to say that what you're feeling and suffering right now is a gift, but you can trust. Amen? Hey, let's take that title and just expand it a little. Here's the first part. The gift no one wants. Paul, the apostle, was familiar with pain. Personal pain, leadership pain, congregational pain. He knew what the community's pain was. You see, in Corinth, they were comparing Paul. This, everybody has opinions. But they were comparing Paul to other great preachers. They said, oh, you know, he's a little dry. He goes on too long. He drones on about this, that, and the other. And, and so everybody liked Apollos, but they were a little appalled by Paul at some point. And they were calling some super apostles. So Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 3 and 4. He says, I know this man. This is his argument. He says, I know this man. Whether he's in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. But God knows that this man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, notice what Paul's doing here. It's very simple. Paul is using the third person to describe an experience he had. And you're going to find out why, because it's so overwhelming. Literally, Paul went to heaven. Now, Pat and I went to the same seminary, and we often brag about it because we love Southwestern Seminary. Where did Paul go to seminary? He went to heaven. I mean, that trumps all of us. Friend, listen, if I died and went to heaven, and apparently Paul didn't die, he just was taken up to see heaven. I promise you, not only would I write a book about it, I would make a movie about it, and I would be on a speaking engagement about it, and I'm telling you, people would come out in droves. But look what Paul says in verse 5. He says, I will boast about a man like this, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness, my weaknesses. Plural, the word asthenia is the Greek word, and it means to wrap with a fist 
to inflict punishment, to inflict pain upon somebody. Ministry has a way of making mere men and mere mortals conceited, especially when ministry is successful. It makes us have to stand on a platform to the point we begin to believe in this platform, that we think this platform is everything. When all of a sudden something happens that sweeps your heart away as a pastor, and now you don't even care if you stand on this platform. You're not even sure you ever want to stand on this platform again. What has happened to you all is a sobering moment. It's not a moment of God's judgment or wrath. It's God's way of taking you in a different direction. Um... There's all kinds of pride we have to wrestle with, ministry pride, knowledge pride. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says Paul's addressing another issue with the Corinthians. There's always something with these people. He said, now, uh, regarding food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Isn't that a good statement? And those who think they know something do not know yet what they ought to know. I'm going to tell you what Satan loves to do. He doesn't care that we plant a church so much. It's a threat to him, potentially. But until that church gets serious about the pain in its community and loving people to Christ and making disciples who multiply throughout this community, until that happens, Satan is just always looking for a skillful way to distract us. And so one of the ways he does that is he makes us proud of what God has done in our midst. And it's God who did it, and we're the first to recognize it, but sometimes we just happen to think, well, we're just special. And, and we, we live in that moment. It's fascinating to me that Dr. Paul Brand, speaking of leprosy again, listen to this, said what leprosy is to the body, pride is to the soul. Pride is our temptation. And what happens is we stop looking at the community through its pain and we start looking at the community through our successes. And we wonder, why don't these people see the gospel so clearly? Why don't, they, why don't they understand? And there's also in most churches in America today, and I can say this with some level of authority, that we have been separated from our communities. And the church has become a compound. It's become a place where people who think alike, look alike, and vote alike all hang out together. And we encourage one another. We've got amazing worship. We've got tremendous programs of ministry and mission. And we've got all of these things happening. In reality, our hearts need to be awakened to the reality that the pain you're feeling now this world and this community out here feels every single day yet without hope. Sometimes I think our pride is fueled by the thought that God becomes academic. His word becomes academic to us. We know it in our heads. In the very passages we preach. So let me ask you, when was the last time God's word brought you to tears? Of conviction of what is right, what is wrong. Do you ever just in moments with the Lord break out in praise of the mercy of God on a hell-bound sinner like me? Is there no sorrow over the condition of your family, of your friends, of your nation? Is there no sorrow for what God endures with my laziness and my pride and my sinful predilections? Those in church who master the Bible without the Bible mastering them become cranks, complainers, 
device of condemning, looking down on the communities they live in with a lack of humility. And that prideful spirit promotes tribalism and division even within the body of Christ. And if we see that we're there, listen to me, pain is a gift because it humbles us and it drives us to our knees again. It breaks us and it refines us again. It exposes us. The worst thing in life is not being exposed. The worst thing in life is dying in your sin to ultimately have God expose it. Cain and Abel, God warned Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Why was Cain tempted to murder? Because his brother found more approval in his worship style than he did. Look at verse 6. Paul then says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Pain is a gift that everyone gets and few embrace. It's the gift no one wants. Secondly, it's the gift everyone gets. I marvel how we can live unaware that these moments come to all of us. They come to us all. So what does the gift of pain do for us? First of all, it humbles us. Look at verse 7. Paul then says, And because of these surpassing great revelations, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We could debate this theology for years, but that word thorn means a sharp stake. Nobody would ask for this. Nobody in their right mind would want this. And Paul is no sadomasochist. He sees God's goodness as a gift, and he even sees the pain and suffering that God allows or plans, and he embraces it. Pain humbles us. Can I tell you something else that humbles us? Unanswered prayer humbles us. Look at verse 8. Paul then says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me. Now, I don't know if this was three times in a row or maybe three epic times of prayer. Let me ask you, the thing that you want most in life, maybe for your children, maybe for your grandchildren, the people that you love, the community you live in, the people you work with, have you ever prayed for something and saw no answer? It was like an epic moment of nothing seems to be moving or happening. Or, or you prayed more, and are there seasons of praying and crying out to God for something? It's humbling when you come to the end of your prayer rope and you cry out to God and you say, God, this makes no sense to me. My eldest son's response to his mother's death was opioid addiction. And this went on for a very long time. And a lot of painful circumstances, a lot of painful prayer. Pat, I got to the place where I cried out to God. I said, God, it doesn't matter how much I pray. You gave him a will and he's going to continue on this path. You said, you talk to God like that? Absolutely. Not every day, but that was a bad day. But I want to tell you what I can tell you this day is that behind the scenes where I could not see on mountains far from me, God was moving those mountains. Do you believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer to the degree 
This community, this church, this pastor needs you to believe in prayer right now, that you will stay at it regardless of what the eye sees. Stay at believing what God says. Verse 9, but he said to me, this is where not only is prayer humbling to us, our circumstances are humbling to us, but listen, grace humbles us. But this is what he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest upon me. The job of every believer is to speak to others about God's love and grace every single day. And you either have it because it's real and out of a close relationship with the Lord or you fake it. And I would strongly recommend not to fake it but to speak the truth in love to others. Our job is to tell others how wonderful he is. We sing of his wondrous love. But I, ask, I have to ask you this, how wonderful is he to you? Oh, my friend, fall in love with Jesus again. Be like the church at Ephesus, restoring to us that first love. God, we need you in this hour. So I ask, how is your inner life? How is your spiritual time with the Lord? Because this is critical. Worship in this room will be transformative when worship in your private closet and space is transformative. How are the operational gifts in your life? Are you serving the Lord with the gifts he gave you in the spirit? For years, I struggled with quiet time. Pat, I was told in college, I was told in seminary, I should have a daily quiet time. I've heard preachers talk about this for years, and it's so true. Yet I struggled to do it. I have short attention span, and it was hard for me to stay focused. I, I couldn't do it in the morning. I tried to do it at night. I, I tried all kinds of different things. I tried different devotional books. Nothing was working. Inevitably, my schedule overwhelmed me. It was hard for me to focus and even pay attention long enough to, to seek the Lord and to cry out to God in that time. But I went through a crisis in my church around 1999, 2000, that finally broke me in this. And I went to John chapter 15 and I realized that he is the branch, I am the vine. Apart from him, I can do nothing. So all my work and all my spending and all my planning and all my leadership and reading the right books and going to the right conferences, all those things were not going to help me if I'm not daily abiding in the strength of the vine through the power of the Holy Spirit that just sows through, flows through Jesus into me. And this old dead branch can bear fruit spiritually. Why am I telling you that? Because the worst day of your life is the day after your wife has died. And you wake up and you think, oh God, I hope this was a nightmare. When it settles in that it's not, what do you do? I tell my church this on a regular basis. The reason I don't have a liquor cabinet in my house is it would be empty. Every temptation in the world could come your way, but friend, I'm telling you, I, the only thing to do was what I knew to do, and that was to go straight to my place with the Lord. And the only reason I stand here today is because of him. Because of him. His grace is sufficient. His grace humbles us, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, that is why, for Christ's sake, listen to this, I delight in weakness in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Don't ask for Pat to come back stronger than ever before. Ask him to come back weaker than ever before. Ask him to come back more dependent upon the Lord than ever before. Because truly, he's had everything kicked from beneath him. Which leads to the third part of this message, and that is this is a gift no one wants, and yet everyone gets. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your struggle, your pain has not been as nearly celebrated as someone else's, but it's just as real. Your loss is just as great. The third point is, and few embrace. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. Paul embraced the pain and suffering of his life. This is not easy to do, nor is it expect, the expectation of this preacher, at least, that you're just going to immediately do this. But you have to understand how important it is. Paul embraced his pain for the advancement of the gospel, for the glory of God through the church. When we refuse to embrace pain, guess what it does? It isolates us even further from a hurting world. We lose touch with a hurting world. Bob Roberts recently said, your faith was never intended to be defined inside the church building, but outside where the love of Jesus and the needs of humanity intersect. Every single day, there's someone in your life, someone at your work, someone at your school, someone in your hood, someone where you play basketball or pick up games, someone on the golf course. There's somebody, I don't care how smart they appear to be, how good looking they appear to be, how rich and wealthy they appear to be, but there's a deep pain inside of their life. And the gospel's not going to help them get another Mercedes Benz. The gospel will change their lives from the inside out. But it's going to be the entry point oftentimes is pain and suffering. This makes zero sense to a world and it makes zero sense to a worldly church. But Paul embraces his pain. And that's what God's asking us to do. Because if we keep living numb, if we keep taking some opioid, it separates us from those that are really in pain who need us to point the way to Jesus. It also insulates us from human suffering. We need to see the world as it suffers without Christ. And it separates us from diversity and from those that God would bring to us if only our arms were open. The gospel exposes you to real pain and real suffering and real difficulty. I'll even go as far as to say because of Pat's relationship to the Lord, I think he hurts more deeply than some. Because God blessed him with an amazing woman, an amazing intimacy. So Paul now boldly asks you and I to embrace personal pain, leadership pain, church pain, and community pain, and to lead, leaders, listen to me, to lead this people, this church, to abandon our comforts and do exactly what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34, if anyone wants to follow me, may he deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me, Jesus said, and the gospel, I will save it. For what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits 
or loses his soul, his life. Here's the message today, church. Embrace this new season at Life Point Church. You say, well, you know, how long do we have to sing sorrow songs? Well, this is a day of mourning. Embrace this new season, but understand something. Let your pain and sorrow drive you back into this hurting community. I'm going to challenge you to do something. I'm going to challenge you because for the next two Sundays, you're going to have some really good preachers up here. Really good ones. And I'm going to challenge you. Who is it that needs to be invited to come hear the gospel from a different voice? Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody at school, your neighbor, maybe a family member. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Could you right now take out your phone and text them? Did did God bring someone to mind, someone that you could invite, just to take your phone and text them? Either do it right now or do it as soon as the service is over. But don't forget to text them and say, hey, would you come to church with me next week? We have a special guest, and I want you to hear him. If you haven't done that in a long time, it's a good habit. And then realize wherever you go this day, wherever you go throughout this week, whether it's a waitress or a work associate, that we think about others' pain, that we listen for signs of their pain. But whether they reveal that in that moment or not, maybe we're not yet in that kind of a trust relationship, but we could do this. We can assume that everybody's got some kind of burden in this life. Amen? Even if all they think it is is inflation and border crisis. Everybody needs a Savior. This nation needs a Savior. Amen? So grief has a way of hijacking the heart and the mind. It did for Mary and it did for Martha, the friends of Jesus, when their brother Lazarus died. And I want to close with this thought. Because God has been brewing this in my heart for some time. There are three periods of time that all of us live with. Very simply, there's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. Mary and Martha are two people dearly loved to Jesus. He was in their home. His feet was on their coffee table. Martha made meals for him. Mary sat at his feet. But there's an encounter in Scripture in John chapter 11. Don't turn there, but just bear with me for a moment. In John chapter 11, there's an encounter where Martha hears Jesus finally got there. Remember they asked him? Days ago, our son, your, your friend, your brother, the one you love is, is not in good shape. He's not going to make it if you don't show up. Jesus, we need you here. And he was delayed and delayed and delayed. Finally, he shows up. The funeral's already over. Lazarus is buried. He shows up and Martha goes out to speak to him. From this encounter, we find that Martha turns out is a pretty profound theologian. While she was cooking, she was listening. And she heard things, and and she asked Jesus, she said, by the way, she said the same thing her sister says when she comes out. She said, Lord, if only you had been here. And then he says, do you believe that your brother, that you will see him again? She said, yes, and she now projects into the future. Here's the past. If only you had been here last week. Into the future, I believe in a resurrection. Someday I will see him again. And then Jesus reveals himself in the present. Look at this. In the past, Martha said, if only. So did Mary. In the future, they said, what if. By the way, when you suffer loss, there are a lot of what ifs. What, 
or what, not what ifs, if onlys, but what, yeah, what ifs about our future as a church? What ifs about our leadership? What ifs about where we're going? What ifs for this family? What if this happens? What if that happens? And, and the thought of the crushing pain that you're experiencing in any given moment is overwhelming to think of all the possibilities of pain. You see, I have a friend, his name is Billy. Billy lost a wife years ago to cancer. Billy lives in a wheelchair. Billy is blind. He's a member of my staff. His name's Billy Graham. We put him in charge of evangelism. I think that was a good move, amen? He's an amazing evangelist, but he has an amazing insight into God and his word. And I went to Billy because I knew Billy knew my suffering. I said, Billy, I am terrified. When I look at my calendar, I was left with a 13-year-old daughter, two sons in college, and I think, I don't know. This girl could go south on me. I could mess this thing up. I am not Tammy. I feel weak, aimless. I, I am lost, and I'm terrified. I'm not a person given to terror and fear. But when I lost Tammy, I, I was consumed by it. Billy gave me some of the greatest advice I've ever received. I give this to you today. He said, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Say amen. It's true. He said, God is true in all times, but God only reveals himself in your present. That's why Jesus could say, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has trouble of its own. Amen? But when God reveals himself in the present, that's why you trust him one moment at a time, one day at a time. You live in the present. The past instructs us us on his faithfulness. The future we can trust into his hands. But you live in the present. I said, but Billy, I can take my calendar and I can show you in April when this comes, I'm terrified. I don't know how to handle this if it happens the way I think it's going to happen. And he said, well, here's the difference. When you get to that day on the calendar, and it is this day, he will be there, and he changes everything. Somebody say amen. What a God who reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses. And he says, who do I tell them that you are? He said, tell them I am that I am. I am the ever-present, I am God. Psalms 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. So we have Mary and Martha, if only, looking at the past and constantly feeling guilt and shame about the past. It's a part of the grieving process. I've gone through it. Pat's going through it. You're going through it. But then he says, the future is so uncertain Martha did and Mary did. But look what Jesus said in John eleven twenty five. He uses the same term God used to describe himself to Moses. Who do I tell them you are? Jesus says, and this is like the seventh I am statement in the gospel of John. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Jesus lifts the doctrine of the final resurrection from some off distant place in a book or in our imagination and he brings it to this moment. To this very moment he is saying to you, I am the resurrection and the life, but my hopes were dashed. I am the resurrection and the God who raises dead hopes, but my my dreams were shattered. I am the God of the resurrection who promises that the reason I came and suffered was to destroy the power of death once and for always. 
Jesus focuses on this painful present. He tells you today, I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I may have a new trajectory for your life and for this church, but I'm doing something right now you do not understand. Nor do you have to. But what you have to do is trust. He is a God worthy of our trust. I am the resurrection and the life. That's the gospel, my friend. You see, Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead, but he had purpose in raising him from the dead. The moment he raised him from the dead, it signed the death warrant of Jesus. In a matter of days, the religious leaders said, we can't have this anymore. He's gone too far. They're going to abandon us and go straight to him. Kill him now. And by raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' death warrant was signed. He was nailed to a cross. Why? Because the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. There is an exchange. You bring God your sin. You bring him your unrighteousness. And the Bible says he took all of that, and with his wrath, God poured it upon the sinless son of God. God demonstrated his love for you in this, the apostle Paul said in Romans, and that while you were yet sinning, Christ died for you. And if you're thinking, I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to stop this, and I'm going to stop this, and, and then get right with God, friend, you don't understand. It's while you're sinning that Christ died for you. Your sin is not intimidating to God. What he wants is for you to open your heart to him, invite him in to forgive you, be your sin bearer, accept what he did on the cross for you, just like these two young people who were baptized. And you will pass from death into life. Friend, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? It starts with a simple prayer of faith in Jesus Christ. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you that you can do that right now in this room, outside of this room right now. You can simply pray, Jesus, I am a sinner and I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe, listen to this, you did everything necessary to save me. So I invite you to save me. And friend, he will do it. And I want to encourage you to do something else. Would you, with your phone, text the word Jesus to the number on your screen? And that will let this staff in this church know that God is doing a miracle in your life. And their role is to encourage you as a disciple of Jesus to follow him every day. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, can I pray this blessing? Lord, your word has been spoken. I pray that the application of your word by the help of your Holy Spirit will seep into each of our hearts, that we will leave this place going back into a hurting world, realizing that our pain is not insignificant. Our pain is not just our burden to bear, but our pain is transformative when we take this love of God to others. And no matter what pain we encounter this week, in an angry response from a barista to, to, a, to a friend who just blows up at work, that there is a God who weeps and there's a God who bleeds and there is a God who forgives and there's a God who intercedes. 
and there's a God who heals. And there is a God, though we wish it weren't so, who has a different trajectory for a man and for, a, for children and for this church. Oh God, may we be your church who embraces your will for your glory. In Jesus' name.